the Tech Canada Leadership Standard, hosted by Tech Speaker of the Year and branding expert, Gare Maxwell. Real life stories from leaders spanning the business spectrum. Now more than ever, leaders are shifting through significant decisions under accelerated timeframes with less information and bigger consequences for their companies, for their people, and for the communities that they live in. You're about to learn of the triumphs, failures, struggles, and disruptions through the first-hand account of an industry leader. Join us now for the Leadership Standard. Today's guest is an Emmy award-winning producer who spent over 30 years as an executive with ABC News and NBC News. Her great-grandmother was a central figure of the Harlem Renaissance. Alelia Walker and her great-great-grandmother was the first female self-made millionaire in America, Madam C.J. Walker. Her New York Times bestseller on her own ground, The Life and Times of Madam C.J. Walker, was the inspiration behind Self-Made, a four-part Netflix series starring Oscar winner Octavia Spencer that premiered in March of 2020. She's a trustee of Columbia University. She founded the Madam Walker Family Archive. She sits on the advisory board of the March on Washington Film Festival. I could go on and on with her incredible credentials. She's here with us today on the Leadership Standard. Please join me in welcoming Alelia Bundles. And Alelia, uh, I am so psyched up for this conversation because the stories that you have to share with us are no less than jaw-dropping. I have to open by asking this. Do you ever pinch yourself every once in a while when you think back when you were a little kid and the story of the great-great-grandmother would someday be all over Netflix? How, how could you possibly imagine that? Well, you know, Gary, it's so nice to be with you, and I'm just really delighted to be able to spend this time. And, you know, I, I think I actually still do pinch myself because I have been... Um, the fortunate one who gets to tell this story. And I get to share it with a wide range of people, whether it's you know, business school students at Harvard or whether it's uh, incarcerated women or interns who are in Washington, DC for the summer that I'm able to inspire others. And, and so take us all the way back. Is there a way you can almost put it through the eyes of a young girl when you first became acquainted with the legend that became Madam C.J. Walker. Even before I could read, I was starting to discover these amazing women in my family. As a toddler, when my mother and I would visit the apartment where my late, at that point, late grandmother, but my grandfather still lived, I would go into the bedroom that had been my grandmother's and almost nothing had been touched. And if I opened up the dresser drawers, there were ostrich feather fans and mother of pearl opera glasses and things that had belonged to Madam C.J. Walker, her daughter, Alelia Walker, and my grandmother, May. This book, On Her Own Ground, take us through the story that led to the book, because we as as authors, we know how much the book almost becomes our, our child, if you will. But I, I'd love to hear the story. And I think our listeners and viewers would too, Alelia, of, 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 of the story of the book that uh, is now a bestseller. Well, after I began to discover these little bits and pieces about these women, 
Um, the, the silverware that we used every day had Madame Walker's monogram and the baby grand piano on which I learned to read music had belonged to her daughter, Alelia Walker. And my mother went to work every day at the Madam C.J. Walker Manufacturing Company. The hair care company was still in business in the 50s and 60s. I would visit my mom at her office. But the, but the company at that point was not a major player in the hair care space. But still, that was where my mom worked. And, but my mother and father, also who was in the hair care business, wanted me to do my own thing. They didn't feel like I needed to go into the family business. But my passion was writing. And so even at eight years old, I knew I was a writer. And I pursued that. I worked on the school newspaper in, in junior high school and high school. When I got to college, I worked for the radio station. And then I went to Columbia University's Graduate School of Journalism. I was all set to go into a television news. At, at, the, at that point, I was sort of moving my way toward television news. But my advisor at Columbia for my master's paper was a woman named Phyllis Garland, the only black woman on the faculty. She'd worked for Ebony and Jet publications in the United States. Her mother had been the editor of a black newspaper in Pittsburgh. And Phil recognized my name, Alelia. As you know, it has a really unusual spelling, A apostrophe capital L-E-L-I-A. And during our conversation about my master's topic, I gave her some, I'm sure, really cliche, boring topics, as students often do. And Phil, at the end of the conversation, said, your name is Alelia. Do you have any connection to Madam C.J. Walker and Alelia Walker? And I suspect Phil knew the answer, but I wasn't making that the centerpiece of my life. And I said, well, yes, that's my family. And Phil said to me, that's what you're going to write your paper on. And that planted the seed and validated the story for me because at that time there were very few books being you know published by or about African Americans so Phil pushed me on that path and I'm forever grateful you know I, I stop and think about those pivotal moments Alelia if your you know faculty advisor doesn't have that conversation do we even see what Netflix is showing now I'm just asking. No, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. It was absolutely a critical moment because it, 19, that was the fall of 1975, a really long time ago. And there were only a few people who were still living who had known these two women. In fact, during, that, during the Christmas vacation, when I went back to Indianapolis from New York, my mom had terminal cancer and actually died during that period of time. And when I talked, I talked to her about this topic and I said, so mommy, I'm, you know, I'm starting to find out Madam Walker is more than those two or three paragraphs that people repeat over and over again. She's, you know, she's not perfect. And so what do I do about that? And in one of our last conversations, she said, tell the truth, baby. It's all right to tell the truth. My grandfather was still living. I was able to interview a few former employees. And we were really fortunate that the one of Madam Walker's secretaries was still living, who had gone to work for her in 1914 as a teenager, had been able to save the, the documents, the photographs, the business records, the personal letters. So that became my trove and the foundation for uh, my research. So, yes, it was really a critical moment, because if I hadn't started it then, I would not have been able to touch those real people. 
And, and so for anyone who's not totally familiar with the story, the incredible story of Madam C.J. Walker, take us through a micro history from a, a plantation in the South. Her name was Sarah Breedlove, and she was a washerwoman and, and self-made really does describe her, you know, incredible rags to riches story. You're, you're right. And so, yes, yeah, my two minute version of Madam Walker's life, but born Sarah Breedlove in Delta, Louisiana, on the Mississippi River, same plantation where her parents and older siblings had been enslaved. 1867, first child in her family born free. Orphaned at seven, both parents died. She moved in with an older sister, uh, Luvenia, who, uh, who, whose husband, she said, was so cruel that Sarah Breedlove got married at 14 to get a home of her own. Married a man named Moses McWilliams. They struggled. They had one daughter, Lelia, and he died when she was 20. She wasn't going to move back in with the sister and the abusive husband, so she moved up the Mississippi River to St. Louis, where her older brothers had moved a decade earlier and become barbers. They were members of St. Paul African Methodist Episcopal Church, and that church had a long reputation of making sure that even enslaved people could read and write and to helping people as they came to city. So the women of the church embraced Sarah Breedlove Washerwoman, who had a good enough voice to be in the choir. And she began to model herself after them. They gave her a vision of herself as something other than an illiterate washerwoman. And then ultimately, she was able to transform her life to create a company, the hair, a hair care company that ultimately employed thousands of women. She made great profits, used that money as a patron of the arts, as a political activist, and as a philanthropist. And so by the time she died, in 1919, at age 51, she was a millionaire employing thousands of women and living in a mansion on the Hudson River a few miles away from John D. Rockefeller. It's just a, a, such a story that is, you know, rooted in timeless truth. And there are so many I found when I was doing my initial research on your great great grandmother, uh, Alelia, that her one of her many gifts was she spied opportunity in terms of how to, you know, she saw her, her business as a way to solve not just one problem, but many problems. How true and how relevant is that still today? And how much of it is seen in the Netflix story? Well, you know, absolutely necessity is the mother of invention. She was losing her hair. And it is when you think that this was 1906 when she developed her formula before penicillin, um, really before aspirin, medicine was really pretty primitive and hygiene was really different. Most people didn't have indoor plumbing. Um, so we, the things we take for granted now, you just get up in the morning, jump in the shower, wash your hair, uh, all of those, none of those things were easy to do. And so as a result, her hair was, was uh, falling out. She was going bald because she, women at the time, some, you know, they might not wash their hair maybe once a month, maybe not at all during the winter. So we won't even think about how horrible that was, but that meant she was, she had problems with baldness and she developed a shampoo and an ointment like Vaseline that had sulfur in it. And sulfur is a centuries old remedy for healing skin infections. So that was the real miracle. And that product had been around for a while. It's in medical textbooks and pharmaceutical um, books, but it wasn't commercially available. A few people were making things, mixing things up in regional or local sales. 
but she had the genius to expand it to a national and international business. Her business acumen, even looking back with the passage of time, um, I, I have to say this, Alelia, that she was thinking way beyond her years. And I know you grew up as a writer and, and probably in likelihood, if you're in journalism, developed a, a strong sense of the power of history. What, what is it that business leaders can learn from the history of Madam C.J. Walker and why it still matters today? Well, I think one of the key things is organization and infrastructure. She was able to observe those women in her church who were part of the missionary society. You know, this is how women exercise leadership when they couldn't really be in the business world. Some of these women in a national, an organization called the National Association of Colored Women, founded in 1892. And some of those women had been educated in Europe. Um, many of them were leaders in their communities. They'd started a national organization with a local infrastructure. And she watched that way of organizing people or bringing people together. So ultimately when she had her first convention in 1917, she modeled it after that. But one of the key things for me, as I look at her life and how she organized, she saw first she had a problem. She helped other women solve the problem that they shared with her. And then in a way she saw, it wasn't just about going bald or a hair care product. It was a, setting up um, an avenue and a way for Madam Walker, for these other women to get education, to be able to have their own independent income at a time when most women didn't work outside the home, but many black women in America worked as maids or sharecroppers or laundresses. So she saw that it was the power of education and then the other piece that I think is really key for her success of her company is her C-suite. <laughs> and she didn't certainly didn't call it that then, but she assembled an executive team with a really strong attorney and general manager. Uh, the woman who was the manager of her factory had been the dean of girls at a black boarding school. So she had leadership skills and she was always looking for other women to be in leadership roles. So that was that was her executive team that made such a difference. And and what a nice segue, because here's the photograph from that convention in 1917. I was watching you on YouTube and I, I was fascinated when you talked about, you know, long before Mary Kay and all of these big conventions were held with all women companies. Your great great grandmother was doing this in Philadelphia, and this is before women had earned the right to vote. Right. Right. Absolutely. Like when you look at this photograph, what does it say to you still to this day, Alelia? It, that is such a powerful image. You know, you think that's 1917. So I think it's two years before Mary Kay is born. Uh, and Madam Walker was hosting this convention. Women came from all over the United States, the Caribbean and Central America, who were her sales agents. And at that convention, like Mary Kay, she gave prizes to the women who sold the most products or who had recruited the most new agents, but she also gave prizes to the women whose local clubs had given the most to charity. So she saw this army of women, not just making money for themselves, but helping their communities. She said to them in her keynote, 
I want you to understand as Walker agents, I want others to look at us and realize that we care not just about ourselves, but about others. And at the end of the convention, the women collectively sent a telegram to President Woodrow Wilson, urging him to support legislation to make lynching a federal crime. So she really saw this sort of power of women making a difference. The significance isn't lost in the in light of the social unrest that that, you know, all of the entire world's been going through, Alelia. But I, I can't help but think your perspective is very different because it goes back over a century. She was a social uh, she you know, she was a social um she was involved in social capitalism, but mm-hmm. like you said, she was a philanthropist, but she was also an activist. She was w- over a century ago when a lot of CEOs, for example, in the face of anything in terms of social injustice, want to run to the corner office. Your great, great grandmother was leading the charge front and center. You know, I, and I will tell you, that is what has drawn me, has kept me invested in this story. Because when I was growing up, I knew the people who did know anything about Madam Walker was primarily, she had a hair care company. So I was intrigued by that, but it wasn't, that wasn't enough to just make me want to follow it. It was then discovering that she was employing other women, but that she had the courage to speak up at a time when there was a lot of pressure not to do that. And that's why CEOs don't speak up today, because they don't want to have any interference or somebody boycotting their product. And, and in fact, her attorney, Mr. Ransom, who, you know, who was great at what he did and kept her protected, you know, kept the lawsuits away and these other things. But he said to her in one letter, you have to be careful about what you say because some of the people you're supporting don't have anything to lose and you may be circumscribed because of your outspokenness. And she was well aware of that. And yet, she stood up anyway and spoke out on behalf of black soldiers and talked about uh, lynching and talked about civil rights. So she knew that there was some risk, but she also knew that the women who had supported her and who had helped build her business were the people who needed her support on these social issues. What what What's your advice? What do you have to say to leaders today? I know some people feel it's it's tough right now to stand up and state your beliefs because of things like cancel culture and whatnot. But what's your what are your thoughts on that, Alilia, given your unique perspective? Well, I think you really do have to be true to yourself. Um, there is a lot of, uh, as you say, social capitalism. People are investing. And I think your empl- employees need to know what you stand for. And that gets them more invested in the company. And, you know, yes, there are some people who will want to do cancel culture or who will want to push back. But I think at the end of the day, if you know the values uh, and the core values of your company are to, to make the world a better place. I mean, I really think that's, that's important. Um, and not to exploit people, but to create an environment where you are doing good in the world. I, I think that's the legacy that I certainly would want to leave. And I, and I hope that most people would want to leave that kind of legacy. One of the questions we always ask here on the leadership standard, because we're just so fascinated with the essence of the topic, how would you define leadership? So given your background with ABC and NBC News and your incredible family story, Alelia, 
leadership. Define it for us now. Well, you know, I think that I have been, I'm fortunate that even from a young age, I was identified as somebody with leadership skills. And I think that I certainly more, you know, I, did, I was learning about Madam Walker. So she wasn't part of that early fashioning of how I developed. It was my parents. And I saw what my parents did, that my parents were involved in volunteering, in involved in politics. My mom was vice president of the Madam C.J. Walker Manufacturing Company, but she was also president of the PTA. You know, my parents were involved in civic activities. And so I modeled that, but it's not just enough to be involved. It's, it's really important, I think, to assess a situation and, find, and think about what is going to make the organization better. I use um, consensus building when I, when I have been in leadership roles. And I also put people first. Uh, I think that is really important. You, obviously, you want to have a great product or you want to have a great service, but how are you treating people? So there are people who can be in charge, but not very empathetic. I like to have at least the sort of service servant leader, I think, is the model that I follow and the model that I saw with my parents. For people watching and listening today, and I, you, you mentioned the word involvement. You're involved at Harvard. You, you're involved with the Smithsonian. I, I get this sense that you're always involved, Alilia. But from that perspective, what do you think some of the common reasons why people in leadership positions do struggle from time to time? Um, I think not having the right intention or doing something because you think that it is going to move you to the next step. I mean, I, I think that all along the way, for me, it's not been, it's not definitely not been about money, though, you know, I've, I've been, I'm comfortable. I'm not wealthy, wealthy, but I'm comfortable. But for me, none of the decisions about any of my career moves have been about how much money am I going to make? It's what can I do to make a difference? And to make a difference in a positive way. You know, at this point in life, I've had, I've been really fortunate to have leadership roles both in my career and in my, you know, volunteer activities. I've been on a lot of nonprofit boards and I've tried to make sure that I led in such a way that other people feel good about their participation and want to give more. And I always will give more than is required. That's really important to me. But I do think people struggle if their intentions are not, um, pure is not really the right word, but if your intentions are not for the good of the organization and really selfish, I think that's part of the struggle. Now, there are other kinds of things. There are external forces, um, you know, like a pandemic um, that you cannot um, entirely, you know, account for. And even, but even in those situations, it's ultimately what is going to be good for other people. Alelia, I can't help but think many times when you're out speaking on the lecture circuit or at different universities, you're meeting young people. And I want to really address this for young women who aspire to be entrepreneurs. What are the kinds of questions they ask when they come up to see you? Uh, and 
what questions should young women be asking if they see business and entrepreneurship in their future? You know, yesterday was one of those days when I had I had conversations with um, six young women, college age women who are in a summer internship program. Um, and I also talked to another young friend of mine who is a, in a leadership role in a pretty substantial organization. And you know, she's and she's in her late 30s. And I just listened to them. And when I when I talked to them, when I answered their questions, I wanted to hear what they were going through. So I listened to what they're experiencing because what they're experiencing has a lot of similarities to anybody, but it's also their generational, their generational differences of the pressures that they have. But the key advice that I give them is, you know, everybody is going to have obstacles. I certainly had situations where I had bosses who I didn't get along with, who gave me a hard time, who sabotaged me, but I've also had great mentors and people who, when I was facing difficult times, helped me navigate that. Really important, um, sometimes, not to say everything you're thinking <laughs> when somebody is not in your corner, but to find an ally to help you navigate your way out of it. It's also important to me uh, to have what I call sort of a the emergency fund. So don't buy the designer bag, but put save that money so that if you need to say goodbye, no matter what the situation, you can leave and you will be fine at least for a few months. But the other thing is to give service. I found that I volunteered for my college uh, alumni association when I was at one point when I was having some challenges at work, you know, I never had I never had like horrible situations that I couldn't that I couldn't get my way out of. But but there are times that I hit bumps in the road in my career development. And when I hit those bumps, I always had these other platforms uh, in which to develop those leadership skills. So it, they weren't paying any money, but that was not the point I gained from them. And I was able to translate that to other to other places. Alelia, are there specific skills that women need to pay attention to on their leadership journey? I'm just thinking from, you know, again, you've you've got this unusually uh, broad perspective of, of, of these issues, uh, but what, from a specific skill point of view, do you think women especially need to pay attention to? <laughs> That's a great question. Um... You know, I, I think for, for anybody, you want to lead with excellence. It's just really important to know at the end of the day, even if somebody else has been critical of your work or not supportive of your work, that you did the best that you can do. And I, you know, we are now in this, you know, moment of me too, and people have all kinds of, you know, people have situations that are really difficult for them to navigate. And so those are, those are hard those are hard situations. And so I think you just, people just have to be really conscious of that. And if you see yourself in a compromising situation, um, just start making your plans to move out of that and to protect yourself. And that those are, those are skills. But I, but I think ultimately, be good at what you do, be prepared, be ready to answer the questions. Um, and sometimes when you see somebody, you have said something in a meeting. I mean, I think this is a particular 
um, situation that women find themselves in. They they present an idea in a meeting and then 30 minutes later, a guy says exactly the same thing and the guy gets the credit. I mean, that stuff still happens, but you have to um, diplomatically figure out how to make sure that you get heard and just keep moving and keep reminding people that you are good at what you do. And then if you are in a situation where you're not being appreciated, start making your moves to go someplace else because you will you will still succeed in another place. I, I, I've got a couple of other questions that I want to go back to your great-great-grandmother for a moment. And, and one of them is this. Do you have your own personal all-time favorite Madam C.J. Walker story? <laughs> the, the incident or the moment that that things changed in, in her life that use that still connects and resonates with you. Yes. I, you know, and this is this was one of those stories when I when I was growing up, the story was Madam Walker born on a plantation, washerwoman till she was 38 millionaire by the time she died at 51. So that was kind of the the paragraph, the origin story. But as I was really in the early stages of my research, I came across the transcript from the 1912 National Negro Business League Convention. That organization had been founded in 1900 by Booker T. Washington, who at the time was the most powerful black man in America. And Madam Walker was still just six years into her company, getting to be known on the national stage. And but at that point, she had given $1,000 to the building fund of the Black YMCA in Indianapolis. So people knew who she was, but she was still a little bit of an unknown factor. She arrived at Booker T. Washington's convention in Chicago with her chauffeur-driven car so she couldn't be missed. But she wasn't part of Booker T. Washington's inner circle. And she asked to be included on the program. And you know that when you have a convention, you have set those speakers six months earlier. So she was coming at the last minute saying, I really, you haven't included me. I want to be included. I want to tell my story. I think it will inspire others. He ignored her request. On the second day of the convention, her good friend, George Knox, who was publisher of a black newspaper in Indianapolis, stood up and said, we should hear from Madam C.J. Walker. She's the woman from my hometown who gave $1,000 to the building fund of the YMCA. She has an incredible story to tell. And Booker T. Washington, who knew Mr. Uh, Knox said, we're discussing lifetime membership. And then he proceeded to call upon somebody who wasn't discussing lifetime membership, one of Madam Walker's neighbors from Indianapolis. As it turns out, this neighbor, successful businessman had been the treasurer of the fundraising campaign for the YMCA. He had a business that was in Indiana and the four surrounding states, but Madam Walker now had a business that was national and international. He had given $250 to the building fund of the YMCA and she had, been, had given four times as much. So she waited until the last day of the convention. And as the last banker was making his report, she stood at her seat, looked at Booker T. Washington at the podium and said, surely you are not going to shut the door in my face. I am a woman who came from the cotton fields of the South. From there, I was promoted to the wash tub. From there, I was promoted to the kitchen. And from there, I promoted myself into the business of manufacturing hair goods and preparations. And I have built my own factory on my own ground. The next year, he invited her back as a keynote speaker. So I love that she had the courage to speak up 
to get his respect. And eventually they became friends. Alelia, I just got goosebumps listening to that story. And I don't know if, I, I'm sure it's not the first time you've told it, but it also illustrates a, a, a bigger question, which is this. How important is it now for leaders in organizations to protect and safeguard their legacy? You've done a great service, I think, to the world by making sure that the legacy of Madam C.J. Walker continues. How is this relevant to other folks? What should other people be thinking about in that respect? Well, you know, legacy is very important. And that is why I, when you ask me about how people structure their businesses and how they operate and what their values are, what your intention is and how you see yourself in the world. As she said, your first duty is to humanity. Now, I know that's not the first thing that people think about, like when they're trying to make sure their, their shareholders are getting value and that the, the product control, you know, control of the, the quality of the product is, is important. So shareholders and um, quality control and payroll and all of those things, obviously all of those things have to be there. But the intention uh, and the goals of the company are really important. So when I'm telling Madam Walker's story, I can look at her life and I, yes, I can see her missteps. I can see how she tried to correct those missteps, but I also can see that ultimately she was taking her own experience the problems she had had in solving those problems, she was trying to make life better for others. And I think ultimately that's why her story is easy for me to tell. If I didn't have all of these other dimensions, if all I could say was, Madam Walker made hair care products and became a millionaire, that would not be enough for me. It's that I'm able to say she made hair care products and along the way, made it possible for women to educate their children, to buy homes, to create generational wealth, to see their role as political activists, and then to leave a legacy for other people. For all we know right now, Alelia, there's an eight or nine or 10-year-old girl watching Netflix and watching the story of your great-great-grandmother. And maybe she's getting inspired to do something with her life. Speak to us about the value and the significance of having heroes. Well, one of the um, most gratifying things for me is telling this story to young people. So while, yes, there's the glamour of a Netflix series, I have just as much fun talking to kids who are working on their reports. <laughs> you know, I love it when somebody sends me the video of their granddaughter who's been Madam Walker in the school play. So I love knowing that she can appeal to all ages and it lets little, know whether little girls are interested in doing hair or whether they're interested in giving back to their communities. I know that this story of Madam Walker is inspirational from across the, across the generation. So yeah, that's, I mean, I think that I feel so fortunate to be the one who gets to tell the story, having done the deep research so that I can pull out the inspirational parts of it, but also to just know that there's some, as you say, there's some little girl uh, who sees this story and who can see herself as being a successful 
businesswoman who the other part of it is makes a difference in the world. On the flip side, what can men learn from your great, great grandmother's story? Well, I, th I think that her business um, ideas are universal. It's having a great product, as she would say, first, you have to have a great product. Uh, then you have to develop a sales team and inspire and empower that sales team and then put together an infrastructure with a great executive team and have a higher purpose, a larger purpose where you are making a difference in the world. And that's whether you're a man or a woman, those kinds of values hold for everybody, I think. Alilia, you have won so many awards. You've, you've been involved in so many organizations, colleges, corporations, entrepreneurship, the Smithsonian American Women History Initiative, the March on Washington Film Festival. There's an Emmy Award somewhere on the shelf behind you. When you think of all the recognition and, and achievement that you've earned, what's, what's the one that you're still so most proud of? Well, the Emmy Award was a nice thing to have. And not too long ago, I was added to the Forbes 50 over 50 women who've made an impact. But I think the thing that, uh, that means the most to me among those things is being is my book on her own ground, being named a New York Times notable book. I was in writing that book, I was sort of outside of the area of my comfort zone. And to be able to know that I was ranked with other books that year means a lot to me. I want to uh, shift ever so slightly into a more personal line of questioning, if that's okay with you, Olelia. Uh, so this is kind of a rapid fire off the top. What are you curious about right now? Well, the things that are, uh, I'm, well, what I'm curious about right now is that I have a whole lot of international travel that I wanna do that has been put on hold. I have a bucket list. I've never been to Asia. I've only been to Morocco and Africa. You know, I have a lot. That's my curiosity is to see more of the world than I've seen. But the issues that are of major importance to me right now are voting rights and uh, history education. Why history? Well, because I think history is so poorly taught. <laughs> when, when I was growing up and when I was in you know high school, I had no interest in history and yet history is what I do every day because history was basically, you know, wars and dry facts, but history is really the story of people and the story of struggles and people overcoming struggles and doing great things. And so now that I have, am able to see history through my family, not just Madam Walker, but other branches of my family, I can place the story, the story of America and the story of the world within history. And I think it's, you know, we're at an, an inflection point, it really in countries all over the world where history has been poorly taught, uh, history has been inaccurately taught, and we're in the midst of a big fight right now in the United States about who gets to tell history and who gets to tell their version of history. Alilia, you're in your car. You've got your playlist on. What are the top five artists on your playlist right now? <laughs> so 
Uh, I love jazz. I was a jazz DJ in um, in college. So Miles Davis, John Coltrane, uh, Dinah Washington, who was my mother's favorite singer, Nat King Cole, uh, and and Prince. <laughs> when you are alone in your car with no playlist, what do you think about the most? Well, I'm thinking about those those issues, the voting rights and, and history, you know, what the, the state of the world right now and, you know, what I can do in my own little way to to make a difference. I mean, but I, think, I would say the other thing that I do when I'm in the car, because the car, the whole car thing is, I mean, it's an interesting question that you ask, because my car is sitting out in front of my house. I drive it very little. I have a 2005 Acura RL. It has 22,000 miles on it. Now that tells you how little I drive because I usually do public transportation, but in the last year and a half pandemic, haven't really gone anywhere. So my battery has been dying and I now have to drive my car three days a week. So I plan trips. And when I'm working in my garden and when I'm driving in my car, I'm listening to audiobooks. So I have, I have made it through several books that were on my list for a long time. I'm listening right now to Brian Stevenson's Just Mercy. I just listened to Les Payne's biography of Malcolm X. Um, next, I'm going to listen to a book um, that by an author who writes about uh, an enslaved woman. So I'm catching, I, I read the, the last boat from Shanghai. So I'm reading all the kinds of things that my book club is reading, but that's what I'm doing in the car most of the time is listening to audiobooks. We're going to get real up close and personal now, Alelia, with what we call the Lipton Pivo Survey. It is standard operating procedure here on the Leadership Standard. And the way we do this is you've got to go with knee-jerk first response, Okay. So let's let's give it a shot, shall we? Oh, and it I always credit its its uh, sources. Good journalists credits the sources. The French journalist Bernard Pivot and inside the actor studio uh, host James Lipton. Oh, he was great. He was. So I think you're going to love this. Alelia, what is your favorite word? Courage. <laughs> what is your least favorite word? Lazy. <laughs> What turns you on? Music. What turns you off? People who lie. <laughs> what sound or noise do you love? Birds singing in the morning. What sound or noise do you hate? Fingernails on a blackboard. <laughs> what is your favorite curse word? I can't say it. <laughs> she is far too ladylike. <laughs> but it's not that I don't say it. <laughs> what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? I would be a lawyer. What profession under no circumstances would you ever, ever, ever do? Hmm. That is a really good question. That's something that I, a lobbyist. <laughs> if heaven for, does. For exist. a cause that I don't believe in. 
Alelia Bundles, if heaven does exist, what would you like to hear our heavenly father say when you arrive at the pearly gates? You did your best. I want you to summarize this incredible story that you've been a part of, the story that you maintain, that you've brought forward into a whole new millennium. Do you have a personal creed or motto, four to six or 10 words, that a phrase that you absolutely live by and swear by? No, I, I will say a couple of things. One is, one of the things that's really important to me and that I, that is the core of what I do every day I write the books that I wish had been written for me. And it's because I don't want another generation to not know the truth about the history, especially of African-Americans and of women. So I live by that feeling that I am here to tell the story so that others know this truth. And because we explore the topic of leadership so in depth on this program, what is the number one question, Alelia, that leaders need to be asking right now? Am I making the world a better place? Before we wrap up, Alelia, any final thoughts or words? You know, I, one of the quotes that I really love is from James Baldwin, one of my favorite writers. And he said, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. Alelia, we could talk for hours, but again, thank you so much for joining us here on the Leadership Standard. It's been a real pleasure. For people watching or listening today, Alelia, how do they connect with you online? What are the best uh, platforms? And, and, and just uh, share with us uh, that information so people will know how to connect with you. Yes, social media. So I'm not on TikTok yet, but... <laughs> But on Instagram and on Twitter, I am at Alelia Bundles, A-L-E-L-I-A Bundles. I'm on Facebook uh, and I'm on LinkedIn. Thanks again so much for joining us and being part of the Leadership Standard, Alelia. Thanks for inviting me. Really enjoyed it. Once again, many thanks to Alilia Bundles, a best-selling author and a caretaker, if you will, of the incredible story of Madam C.J. Walker, now on Netflix. Um, if you do want to know more about Tech Canada and its world-class programs, just uh, check out the website, www.tec-canada.com. What was it that Alilia spoke of that made you stop and think. For me, it's the incredible story of Alelia, uh, her great-great-grandmother, Madam C.J. Walker, standing up, demanding to be heard uh, by, uh, you know, uh, by Booker T. Washington. But what were your biggest takeaways? Feel free to share them with me. My personal email is gair, G-A-I-R, at garemaxwell.com. If you enjoyed the Leadership Standard, Feel free to like, share, and subscribe. You can press that like button in, in a very sharp way and share this with other people in your social circles so, so that, who knows, I mean, maybe we're going to inspire somebody else to, you know, grab hold of the clutch and go full throttle in this new frontier. So on behalf of everyone, the technical crew, Alexander, Stephen, Kat, Mark, and the gang at Tech Canada in Calgary, this is Gary Maxwell. Thank you again for joining us for The Leadership Standard.